brothers and sisters, friends and comrades. This is the PRC Show. I'm your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. Okay, today on the show, we're going to have two different uh, guests. We're going to have Marina Antich, which is going to be coming on shortly. She's a um, professor, PhD in cultural Bosnian literature some sort she's a smarty she's going to talk about bosnia and she's trying to go there and i want to plug her site where she's doing some fundraising it's bit.ly backslash capital m a n t i c that's bit period ly backslash capital m a n t i c also we're gonna have uh some interviews, some horse carriage drivers. <laughs> I traveled recently from Fort Worth, Texas to Harrisburg, uh, and I was in Memphis and did an interview with some of those folks. So we'll see how that goes. That'll be later in the show. Um, but I want to clear some things up. I recently sounded on the last episode that I was more upset about Philip Seymour Hoffman dying than a family member of mine. And um, that's not entirely... Well, that might be true. Um, The person that died was my father's wife, who I did not get along with. And the best way to think about this is imagine somebody that you don't get along with at all, that you have a poor relationship with, that you're just, it's like icy, jumping in an icy pole every time you're around them. You're afraid to offend them, and it's, there's a bad history there. And then imagine that they're married or they're, you know, they're attached to somebody that you love dearly. Um, and then imagine that they took that person, they took the, my father, uh, and they say, well, we want to leave the state. <laughs> so they isolate, this woman kind of isolated my father from our family to some extent. And I'm not going to go into all the bad transgressions that she did. Uh, I feel sad for her family. Um, which is a whole other story because not many people in her family feel sad. She was just depressed and it, smoking, okay, <laughs> please don't smoke. Smoking was probably the cause of her death. So only 59 years old and just uh, really smoked a ton. Um, but, you know, it's good that my dad is doing okay. Um, I recently drove him, helped drive him back from uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, to Harrisburg, by the way, it is 57 degrees in Fort Worth, Texas, and 36 degrees in Harrisburg, PA. <laughs> I guess I'm done doing that for a while. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's a little complicated because, in on the one hand, I'm uh, sad that this person died, but it's a good thing. Um, well... Okay, I should just stop talking, because it's not a good thing that she died, but the con- the results, things are good for my dad in a lot of ways. Uh, does this make me a bad person? You know, <laughs> well, there's other reasons why I'm a bad person, and maybe this is one of them. I don't know if it is. If you think it is, email the show at prcshow at gmail.com, prcshow at gmail.com, and weigh in. It's just so weird, because I've never... I, to feel when someone has to feel almost good that someone died is is a ter- you you would think I would feel terrible about that but I can't believe I'm admitting this but uh, I don't it is what it is what are you gonna do so um, 
I don't know. Do you guys have anybody like that in your life, in your family that, you know, if you thought this person died, things would be better for this person, that person, yourself? And really not even for me, for my father. As weird as it sounds, I think this is better for my father. Um, so, um, all right, let's stop talking about that. Let me call Marina and let's talk about Bosnia and what's been going on there. Now, this, her, she's calling on the phone, so I think her volume's going to be a little bit lower. But the quality's decent, so enjoy this conversation. Hello? Okay, I have uh, Marina Antich. Uh, she's a PhD in comparative literature and cultural studies. Friend of mine, a super intelligent uh, person. And she is from Bosnia, um, Yugoslavia. I don't know, where are you from? Um, yeah, thanks, Paul. I'm I'm from Bosnia originally. Uh, Bosnia used to be part of Yugoslavia, so yeah, you can tag me both ways. Okay, great. And um, she uh, is going to tell us a little bit about what's been going on in Bosnia recently and uh, her uh, proposed trip there, and um, she's doing some fundraising to, to head there. And before you kind of uh, explain uh, kind of what's been going on there, I just want to tell you that um, I did a little bit of... Uh, research, and I mean like two minutes, but um, of like uh, Yugoslav, that's not true, more than two minutes, but it, it's a very complicated uh, history, and we don't need to go into that, but I just want to let <laughs> folks know um, that, uh, you know, there was a ethnic conflict there for like uh, in the 90s, basically. Um, uh, three and a half years of, of really bloody war um, that, yeah, it ended in 1995, so. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, if you if you look at the Wikipedia page of um, you know, <laughs> you'll see the fights. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, Yugoslavia, which you know is Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia Herzegovina, um, Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro. I don't know if I'm missing any. Does yeah, that sound okay. right? Yeah. So those are all the countries that came out of that um, civil war, or whatever you want to call it. Well, now there's Kosovo as well. Oh yeah. A, a province within Serbia. Oh, okay, that's right, Kosovo. Yeah, people are familiar with that. Um, okay, so, okay, I'm going to let you talk here, but I just want to take one issue with you, so I'm going to give you a hard time here, because um, I was reading on your, uh, by the way, her, to, to contribute to her um, trip to Bosnia, go to bit.ly backslash capital M-A-N-T-I-C. Um, you say that, uh, okay, Bosnian students and the unemployed set government buildings on fire in response to police attacking the workers with whom they were protesting. As scary and destructive as this was that morning, I was overjoyed, happy for the first time in my adult life. Now, now hold on a second. You're, <laughs> you are a, um, you live in Pittsburgh. You are not, uh, you are a Steeler fan, correct? Now, the Steelers did win two Super Bowls. <laughs> yeah, um, it's really not a contest. <laughs> All right, okay. I mean, you know, I, I was, I was um, let's say, cheerful when they won. I mean, I was maybe approaching happy, but uh, this just doesn't compare. I mean, I was literally crying that morning when I saw the pictures. Um, it, it really, like, it was that important to me. So tell me about that. What, what, why so? 
so so okay so so just the only thing that you really need to know for the story of what happened in february specifically in february 7th yeah. is that the same people the same parties that essentially led the country to war and a war that 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 was filled with massacres genocide really terrible things that 20 percent of the bosnian population left the country the same people who did that have been in power for 22 years uh-huh. And for the entirety of those 22 years, um, the people on the ground found no ways to fight back effectively. Um, it has been it has been very difficult. The ideology of war is still there. Uh, people are afraid. Uh, not only that, but like the unemployment is high, and everybody's just sort of trying to eke their existence, just just live, you know. And so what was especially exciting was that this was the first time since the war that the people on the ground united to fight not around ethnic issues, which we've had some of that, Mm -hmm. but to fight around workers' issues. It is like for the first time we've overcome this huge hurdle of let's just – we were not going to solve – this issue of, of you know ethnic conflict until we resolve basic issues like uh-huh. workers rights unemployment student rights and so forth and that is what is fundamentally different about what happened in february and that was the first time so on february 7th uh, um the workers from this one factory they haven't been paid for like two years um and they they occupy the factory <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this is kind of horrid primitive accumulation that's going on in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. People work for months without getting paid. Basically indentured slaves, when they ask for salaries, they are told if we pay out the salaries, the company is going to go out of business and you will be left without a job. And official unemployment is 45%. Um, Unofficial, of course, it's higher because a lot of people have simply dropped out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. So under those kinds of, you know, threatening conditions, these workers walk, walked out and they have decided to block their factory, pr- protect the machinery inside, because they suspected correctly that the owners were going to sell it into scrap metal. Mm-hmm. That's what happened to a lot of these other factories. And so these workers used to protest every, you know, week, every month, every other week in front of the government buildings asking for help in resolving this, this dispute with the employer. And on that uh, on that Friday, um, the police decided to attack them. Um, the uh, they were they were joined by some war, some students, some unemployed people who have been trying to sort of organize something on the ground. And when you know, as as usually it happens, when the police attack them, um, the people just on the street react, and mm-hmm. they react emotionally and violently. Right. And um, and this started happening from one city to another. So. It sort of developed over a period of three days, but on, on February 7th is when, in all of the major cities, the government buildings were set on fire. Mm-hmm. And um, so huge clashes. Um, and uh, Spontaneous. This is like the first time that the kind of... And I was looking at the uh, different websites and stuff, and it's it looks like th- these happened in uh, not just Sarajevo and... Uh, I don't know how you say that. Tuzla. Tuzla. But um, really all over the whole uh, region. In, in like, yeah, smaller um, cities and, and whatnot. Yeah, there was nothing violent in the smaller entity, which is the uh, under Serb nationalist control. Um, but since then, I've been in touch with a lot of activists on the ground, and they are getting death threats, and it has been very difficult for them to organize. 
they've had minor protests in which they were, you know, really badly treated. So um, there is this issue that the Serbian nationalist uh, elite wants to keep their entity separate from this issue, but it's not possible. Just yesterday, um, I read the, a news new story that the workers, the miners at the Swan Bauxite uh, mine have all walked out. Hmm. So there, there is workers' unrest everywhere, but, um, there, you know, the nationalists are really trying to sort of pitch it, you know, different ways that this is sort of nationally divided, that this is, yeah. you know, not all across the country. The reality is it is. It, it really, truly is. And, and this is what's so fascinating. And this is um, taking place solely in Bosnia-Herzegovina? No. Uh, so <laughs> what was really fabulous is when this happened... In Bosnia, in early February, by you know the end of February, early March, we had solidarity protests in every former Yugoslav republic. Oh, no kidding! Okay. Uh, um, we we've had clashes, you know, with with Macedonians were you know actually got into serious clashes with the police over this, and they were chanting Bosnia the entire time, right? Oh, okay. So people are seeing this as a spark, as as in you know this. The country that was most uh, devastated by what had happened in the 90s, which was Bosnia, mm -hmm. it sort of had to start there, I feel. Um, and this is why we're all so really excited. Um, and you also translate or edit uh, a website that's uh, kind of, because there's not much been news about what's going on, but it's, um, right, right. it's BH, so yeah, bhprotestfiles.wordpress.com. That's correct. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this started with me and two of my uh, uh, diaspora uh, buddies from, from academia. Um, we, we were, you know, talking about this on Facebook and uh, realizing that there was really no coverage. So we started just translating direct statements from um, the activists on the ground, uh, started translating interviews with workers, interviews with, you know, different people on the streets, mm -hmm. and really tried to focus on sort of firsthand accounts We've had, we have translated some uh, commentary, but the focus was we're trying to get this information straight sort of from the horse's mouth, yeah. right, and, and try to deliver it um, to the English-speaking public. Now, the coverage has been minimal. Um, there have been, you know, a couple of articles, a couple of uh, um, op-eds, but really nothing. Um, and it seems like, you know, all of the focus is on Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and now, of course, the situation in Ukraine has really become quite terrible. Um, and all of the Yugoslavs uh, that have been commenting on Ukraine uh, see in Ukraine what was happening in Yugoslavia in the 90s. Right. And, and our message to them is do not go into war. Right. Um, do not let people manipulate you into war the way we were manipulated. So... So yeah, this this tended to you know take all the uh, um, attention away, and I think the other problem with Bosnia is that it's fundamentally an anti-systemic uh, uh, protest in the sense that it is against uh, the neoliberal order that is being uh, uh, um, imposed in Bosnia that has been imposed in Bosnia for a while now which is not the case with, with uh, Ukraine. It was quite the opposite. So while the Ukrainians were clamoring to go into the EU, um, the Bosnians don't necessarily see the EU as a resolution of any sort. It is, you know, something that you have to join if you want to be a functional, uh, um, you know, economic partner because you can't really do trade or anything unless you're working with them. Mm -hmm. But it is not a solution to Bosnian problems. In fact, it's probably going to make them worse. So, it, so you, you make me, yeah. um, you make me think that uh, there's. Um, 
like who are the organizations on the ground? I mean, I'm thinking like there's not many, uh, or this seems like a spontaneous, just general people yeah. had kind of enough. But is there any uh, nonprofit or I guess unions are sort no. of leading? But I don't know how yeah. great the unions are, um, or at right. least how savvy and sophisticated and what how great their analysis are. And I guess so. That's one question. What are the organizations that are there? And then. Is there a unified ask of, like, what are people specifically asking for other than, like, I want to get paid, but, like, how that would work? And yeah. um, so, that's a big yeah, question. So the, <laughs> the answer to the first question is the situation with the unions is um, pretty sad. Um, two reasons for that. But that's, One like, is, everywhere <laughs> for the most well, part. <laughs> it's actually a lot worse. I mean, it's, it's a lot worse than here, I would say. Oh, God. Uh, the reason is that a good number of unions have simply been bought. Uh, mm-hmm. by the regime and those in power, by the elites. So, for example, the workers who started this in Tuzla were, had to organize uh, independently and against mm-hmm. their, their actual union because the union did not want them to do this, and they, you know, they were the first, as the workers said, they were the first one to betray us. So there are some unions that are actually better. Um, for example, also in Tuzla, there is a, a furniture factory that has a union, and their union president is out there with the workers every day. Oh, um, that's you great. Know, blocking traffic and doing all that stuff. So, yeah, there are some unions that are, you know, trying to, to, to do something here and trying to represent the workers, but there are some that are simply too corrupt. So that's your problem number one. Problem number two with the NGOs is that the NGO sector in a place like Bosnia is very much a Western sector, and it pursues very Western goals. Um, so there's not, you know, uh, 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 you, you're going to have a hard time finding people in that sector willing to engage. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in terms of what the organizations are on the ground, this is, this is the, the fact that it was a spontaneous uh, uh, beginning, but people have tried to organize. Mm-hmm. So um, since, since February, they have organized into what, what you could call sort of general assemblies in each town. Is this plenum? Have, I, I saw on the website, on your yeah, website, plenum, plenum. And right? I want to know what um, a, a definition of plenum, and I would like plenum to... Plenum is, is an open meeting, right? Mm-hmm. It's an open meeting by, you know, sort of everybody interested, any particular group of people. And in this in this case, it's really open to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and they've had excellent turnout. I mean, by our standards, they have they have had turnout that is beyond belief they Mm -hmm. have a thousand people show up every day in each town so like that's you know um but uh, one of the problems is that people on the ground have not had an opportunity to to hone their skills you know i mean in 30 years there has been very little if any organizing so a lot of times you know they, they don't necessarily you know have examples to follow or even like sort of you know uh, uh, models in mind when mm-hmm. they're trying to organize. But this is, despite all of that, this has worked successfully. I mean, it has worked remarkably well. Mm-hmm. And they have put out, uh, they have put out uh, uh, certain asks, as you say, and uh, primary among them has been the resignation of the government and, and calling for elections. Now, the elections have been called for um, about 40 uh, 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 various from sort of various levels of government, about a 40 representative, you know, 40 elected officials mm-hmm. have resigned since this has started. Oh, no kidding. But, yes, but what was, you know, what's interesting is that as soon as, you know, uh, people uh, 
went into the plenums and stopped burning buildings, the resignations have also stopped. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Uh, it, you know, it was a direct answer to the force. So the question is now how do we uh, organize in a more productive way and not just uh, by, you know, means of sheer force to uh, um, get these people to, you know, follow some of the demands. So the, the, the primary one when it comes to, you know, sort of across the board in, in all of Bosnia has been this ask that I, you know, I also think is most, most, most important, and that is the revision of privatization. So mm-hmm. just, just a quick note on that. So, so what happened was back in Yugoslavia before the war, um, we had the self-management system, which meant that the workers working in a particular enterprise or factory or any kind of place of employment were the, the de facto owners of, as we would say, means of production mm-hmm. of that factory and everything in it. And they would make decisions uh, under a particular manager called director, but they would make decisions in these workers' councils, right? So um, when, th- when the first round of privatizations hit in the 19- late 1980s, um, some of the some of these places, in, in you know, a lot of these companies were sort of people were issued certificates as if, as in you know, sort of almost like stocks, right? You, you own you know however many stocks in this mm-hmm. particular company because we're trying to privatize it. Well, you know, as the war happened after the war, the privatizations that occurred were incredibly corrupt, illegal, you know, criminal, really, and. Um, you know, people were buying companies for a dollar. Um, it was like a looting buying, of the, like a looting of the state type of thing. Absolute like, looting. Yeah, um, and and what was what was really you know criminal is that the state was selling this as if this was state uh, property when in reality it was not. It was public property, right? So the state did not own the enterprises in Yugoslavia, and and honestly, in my mind, they had no right to sell them. But, you know, by some sort of skewed logic, economic logic, somehow they determined that, that the state had a 51% ownership in just about every single company mm-hmm. and therefore was allowed to sell them. Um, and they were sold using those issued certificates that were purchased on the black market for cents on the dollar. So even if it wasn't sold for, you know, completely criminally for a dollar at a time, it was maybe sold for 50 grand, a company that was worth, you know, $6 billion, you know, back Uh in the day. So uh, those kinds of privatizations happened, um, created tycoons, just like in Russia, and uh, every single company basically was driven into bankruptcy, and now the Bosnian industry is destroyed. And Bosnia was very, very industrial. Right. And so w- what people want is a revision of all of these privatizations. They want, they want, you know, complete transparency. They want these uh, um, contracts to be, you know, nullified, and they want sort of, you know, a, a resolution to all of this. Um, they're not necessarily asking for the companies to go back to the workers. They're not asking for self-management, but they're asking for something that is going to be legal and, tra- and transparent, and hopefully that will lead to a better, uh, uh, um, you know, solution for everybody, including the workers. And there are some examples. There's, there's a great article on the, on the BH protest files I translated that gives you like ten examples of the worst privatizations in Bosnia mm-hmm. and ten examples of the best. Okay. Um, so there are ways to do this which are not absolute plunder, um, but unfortunately the majority of it is. So that's the, that's the big, uh, the big worker, workers' demand across the board. So it's not necessarily a – it seems like a reasonable ask. It's not saying uh, – Right, yeah, right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not like, you know, we want communism back or we want, you know, we yeah. want to, you know, take it over ourselves. 
They're just asking for a fairly reasonable, you know, ask, which is under the current laws, let's just follow the laws and revise these, you know, corrupt and, and abrupt uh, privatization. Are there any popular uh, leaders, politicians, no, no, or un other than this union leader that's the, in the, fan uh, manu uh, the furniture place? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and these, are, these are, again, like sort of, you know, one figure amongst many. Right. Um, there, there are, for each of these, you know, plants or companies, um, there's usually, you know, one leader that, that has, you know, been representing them. But nationally, uh, in public, in but, but like um, nationally, there's but no sort not, of po no. political no, person on the, like nobody on the fringe that is now saying, like, I've been saying this for years, that's coming. Oh, well, you know, some of them have tried, but uh -huh. they've been booed because, you know, it's just not true. Oh, okay, there right. Been, there hasn't been political representation of these issue and for issues, unfortunately. And, and I think one of the things that led people to revolt is that the, 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 at the last elections, it was the Social Democrats who, who gained power, and it turned out that they were no uh, less corrupt than the nationalists, and it's sort of like, well, now we're, we're without a choice, right? I mean, who do you elect now? Uh -huh. So it will be interesting to see what happens with the elections, that, that it's not going to resolve, I don't think, any of these issues. So, you know, it's, it's really a beginning of a social movement that will hopefully one day produce... Uh, the kind of change that people have been asking for, but it's not going to happen overnight. And you want to throw yourself all into this. You want to head over there. Mm. That's the plan here. Yes, I do. Yes, yes. Um, very badly. So here, here's my logic. Um, I am unemployed currently. Um, I have gone through a round of, of job uh, applications. Um, this is the summer lull um, when it comes to that. Unemployed I PhD. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Unemployed with a PhD. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, and I'm just one of, of many. But <laughs> so, um, in a, in, you know, in a having, having had some experience with unions, um, you know, my direct experience was with my graduate union in Madison, the people who started the Wisconsin protests, um, but also having been around a lot of unionists and volunteered with a bunch of, you know, social campaigns, and you know me. And yeah, I, and no, and, you, and, and let's say you did a lot of good work in the Occupy stuff in uh, Pittsburgh. You were one of the main organizers. Best, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you did great work there. Um, uh, thank you. And, uh, I, and also from living here, being in diaspora, being here for so many years, I've learned a lot about the American history um, of, of, you know, social justice movements and labor movements. And this is the kind of history, the kind of lessons that the Bosnians need, because this is the first time that the Bosnians are really fighting back against a, a capitalist system. Uh -huh. um, a lot of times there are assumptions, there are ways people think and speak that are not adequate for dealing with the kind of system that they have nowadays, right? So, and this is something that I saw when I was there in 2006 and 2007. And, and they're fairly simple lessons, um, you know, they're lessons about, about uh, so-called specialists. For example, that, you know, when somebody presents you with a study, that you need to ask who paid for the study. Uh -huh. um, this is something people don't understand back home necessarily, because it was different in socialism, uh -huh. right? Because um, it was all publicly funded. So th these are the tiny little lessons. That's, that's one tiny example. Right, right, right. The other one is just, you know, the basics of organizing, that you have to collect people's names and numbers so you will be able to, you know, communicate with them later, that you right. know who your allies are. <laughs> Certainly. That you develop a strategy that you can't organize just on Facebook. 
tiny things, right? right? I mean, and you can't really fault these people for in Bosnia for not necessarily knowing this because this is their first time doing right. it. We've been doing it for ages here, and so they... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So all the great lessons of, you know, of the civil rights movements, uh, the, the, you know, labor movements in the U.S., these are all the things that could really, really help people on the ground in Bosnia. And... I feel that I can be really useful. Now, you know, I, I have no illusions. It, it is not possible for me to go there and become part of the movement mm -hmm. in, you know, three months. Um, but I have good contacts, friends, essentially, uh, from back home who are, uh, um, you know, at the forefront of the, you know, plenum activists. And, and I, think, I think I'm very good at talking to people, and I know how to talk to the workers. And I want to, like, for example, I want to go to this mine. Um, you know, people in Sarajevo want to stick in Sarajevo. I, I don't care. I will, I will go to the mm -hmm. mine. I want to talk to the miners. I want to connect the miners with the factory workers in Tuzla. This is all, like, you know, within two hours' drive. Nice. And so they all need to be connected. You know, these are the tiny little things that, you know, people might not necessarily think of, but I think ultimately could be very helpful. And so that's what I want to do. And I think I have enough connections that I could actually be useful in, you know, some sort of consulting role, but also just being a soldier on the ground. You know what I mean? Like talking to people, this is my native language. This is, you know, uh, um, I still sound very native. I don't sound foreign. So these are all the things that can, you know, help me ultimately when I talk to people. And we can and, uh, give to uh, Marina's trip um, or help fund it by going to bit.ly backslash capital M A N T I C. And the capital M's important or else you go to some college website or something. So it's bit.ly backslash capital M A N T I C. And maybe I'll have my producer, uh, Josh, put it up on my uh, SoundCloud or whatever. Um, yeah. Okay. You. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah. uh, you know, this is exciting. I, I uh, any sort of plans on uh, when you think you'd be able to do this in the next couple months, I'm assuming, or next? Yes. I'm thinking, uh, you know, possibly being able to go in June. Um, uh, there have been some positive developments and some negative ones. I haven't been able to find any grants that I could apply for because I'm, I'm sort of reaching out to labor mm -hmm. solidarity organizations. Um, the Rosa Luxemburg folks have, uh, the, the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, they have. Uh, the Rosa Luxemburg Fund? I never heard of that. Yeah, and it's this German thing, and they have actually offices back in, in, in former Yugoslavia, so I've talked to them, and they can put me in touch with people, and they're willing to help me sort of in, in, in that kind of a way, but they can't really fund, um, you know, individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, so I haven't been able to get any sort of institutional support, which I know that's, you know, it's, 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 it's fairly difficult. It's sort of yeah. an obscure thing. Um, but the positive thing is that I, I might be able to reduce the costs of what I really need mm -hmm. because I will be able to couch surf with a few friends. Right, you know people there. Right, well. right. So that will be really good. So that immediately brings down the, you know, the amount necessary. So uh, I'm really hoping I get to do this. Um, it, would be, it would be great. Um, I, would, I would love it, of course, and I think I could actually be useful, you know. Okay. Uh, and, and that's the kind of thing that, you know... Um, Makes me want to go. Well, so. we we uh, we want you to go, and again, we'll uh, please give to the go on that site and give some money to Marina, and hopefully she'll be successful. I think you'll. I think I can see you doing this. I'm excited, yeah. and you'll and you'll report back and yeah. everything, and you'll uh, do some correspondence and somehow. Oh right, right, because that's 
that's the other part. I mean, I, I would, during the entire time, I would be, um, you know, uh, uh, I would try to have a video journal and a written journal, um, either posted to our blog or to, you know, a separate blog. Yeah. But I would try to sort of document ways, ways things are, you know, happening there and what are some of the challenges, some of the interesting uh, um, sort of realities on the, on the periphery of European capitalism. Right. So, I think that would be that would be exciting. Okay, so uh, my wife was looking at your Facebook, and there was something about somebody saying, "Oh, it's good to see the ethnic groups um, getting along," or something like that. And then you right. kind of said, "We didn't know we were different ethnic groups back then. We were all you, you read it, I guess." To, cause yeah, hold on. So, so what happened was this is a I believe somebody um, some French report, some French. Um, uh, article about Bosnia that got cited in this um, uh, BrooklynRail.org um, article in Bosnia. Um, okay. The article is, is on the revolts in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So what happened is, is somebody in on the ground in Bosnia was talking to the workers, and this was in the city of Mostar, which is really bitterly divided between uh, Bosniaks and Croats, uh, to the point that, that they have separate schools, I mean, uh -huh. like actual segregation. And so a worker speaking during a mass meeting in Mostar, uh, um, speaking to this reporter, reacted to a speech praising the multi-ethnic diversity of the country, right? Somebody was giving a, you know, a great mm -hmm. uh, yay for the multi-ethnic Bosnia. And the worker says, well, fuck your multi-ethnic stories. Before the war, no one knew who they were, and we were better off. And, yeah, this is a woman or a man to my heart because... This is, I find of, that, uh, this is my experience, right? I find that um, super fascinating that, um, yeah, it's like, I don't, uh, I guess that's the crux of the whole uh, civil war and all that stuff, but it's, uh, it, I guess it gives some insight into what was going on there and I guess what, what's been delaying some progress there now. Right. I mean, I always uh, cite this this um, one guy who wrote an excellent. Uh, um, it was an academic article. Uh, it's called on of, um, Bos of Bosnia's and Bantustans or something along those lines. It was Rob Nixon, and he what he says in that article is absolutely true, and that is that ethnic identities do not exist prior to conflict. They get created in the conflict, mm -hmm. meaning that it is not the ethnic. Uh, conflict that leads to war, but rather that during that war is when you really have this creation of these warring ethnic identities. Us and them. And, and this has really been the case in Bosnia, right? Where before the war, yeah, there were these sort of historical ethnic identities, but I never honestly thought about it twice. Mm -hmm. It was not something that, that you reflected on. It wasn't something you, definitely wasn't in my family something you talked about. Absolutely not. And, and because it had bad associations with World War II. But uh, it was in the conflict that you have these, you know, ethnic identities created often, you know, in, in, in under very difficult circumstances and personal tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, that's essentially, you know, what, what the worker is saying, meaning, you know, these kinds of the creation of these identities in the conflict is, you know, not, you know, something that you necessarily want to celebrate. Yeah, multi-ethnicity is great, but it's so much better to just be, you know, human beings and not, <laughs> right. not be identified along these, you know, div divisive lines. So I think that's, you know, that's... That's the point, yeah. Okay.
Okay. Well, that's that's. Uh, I have to check that that art. I wonder if I can. That's an article available online or whatnot. But yes, uh, I can. Let me give you the uh, actual link. So, if you go, okay. So it's it's www.brooklynrail.org slash 2014 slash 04 slash field notes slash hope on the revolts in Bosnia Herzegovina. So okay. you can just Google it. Okay. Well, thank you, Marina. Thank you, Paul. Okay, Marina, thanks for that talk. Now I want to take a musical break, play a little Modest Mouth song about traveling. Marina's trying to travel. I just traveled and drove thousands of miles in a car. And uh, we're going to interview some people that uh, transport people for a living. So after this musical break, um, we'll get on to the show. As long as you're gone, I can't Okay, that was Modest Mouse off their album Building Nothing Out of Something, the Li- A Life of Arctic Sounds. Okay, um, I'm going to read some letters that I got, and uh, in a second I'm also going to play, while I'm reading these letters, a song, just some music, not even a song, just some music I recorded, so if you like it, let me know. Um, oh, there it is. Okay, so 
yeah, the song is just, this music is just like little guitars and doodads and stuff that I made, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. Okay, so, all right. Here's a letter from Kalinda Stampson from Finley, Ohio. That's where I bought that, uh, that's where I bought a used book once. Okay, um, dear Paul, last show is okay, though I was annoyed with your religious funny revelations piece. Why do you mock religion? You are a simpleton. You are part of a wide range of people who would never say something like, all black people, blah, 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 yet often assume that Christians are just as monolithic as racists think black people are. I don't know you, but I think your thoughts about religion are harmful, especially from someone who considers himself the leftist. Don't forget that a majority of abolitionists and civil rights activists were were religious. Alright, good point. Um, It's not just Fred Phelps and Jerry Falwell. Gandhi and MLK um, were progressive giants of the 20th century who were religious, and yet... First world white progressives have a very condescending take on religion and the religious. Yeah, maybe because religion is, uh... Well, okay, I'm not going to be mocking. Good point, Kalinda. Thanks for the lecture. Okay, um... I don't know what else to say to that. So... If you didn't like the Revelations piece, fair enough. But I read that book, and I was inspired, so that's what I did. Okay. This is uh, an email from Wendy Overton from Kumasi, Ghana. I don't know if I'm saying that right. (laughs) Okay. Paul, please don't make any more shows. My podcast app on my phone accidentally stumbled upon your show and got stuck. I had to listen to all the episodes due to a phone glitch. The best parts of the show is when you are not talking. (laughs) I feel sorry for your wife and coworkers. The only decent thing about your show is the intro music. Well, thanks, Wendy. Um, do they not have uh, decent phones over there in Ghana? I mean, uh, you could have just reset your phone. Um, okay, whatever. Uh, next here, uh, remember last episode we did uh, some music talk, and um, Diana Robinson was talking about violins and the barometric pressure. So we got a scientist guy on here, uh, Tony G from Erie, PA, says, uh, I don't think the largest factor in violin sound change is barometric pressure but other environmental considerations. I would rate temperature first, then humidity, then barometric pressure. These factors all go into how a violin system responds. The wood, the strings either expand or contract depending on the temperatures. The humidity also changes the density of nature products. There's a fundamental relationship with frequency output, which is, a, which is proportional to mass geometry factor. Length is the simplest, as the humidity changes, the mass is either increased or decreased in natural materials. Okay, Tony, I think that's a good point, but I'm not um, qualified to say yes or no. (laughs) Um, Although, as someone that's played guitar for a long time, I will say, I get your point about humidity. Um, That definitely changes the tuning, and sometimes you gotta tune your guitar differently. So, um, yeah, what do you say? You break temperature first, then humidity. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got a good point there. Okay, if you want to email the show, if any more thoughts, uh, 
comments. You know, I even read the bad ones. Please, uh, somebody send me a good email. That would be nice. Uh, prcshow at gmail.com, prcshow at gmail.com. And let me know if you like any of this music that I'm creating. All right. It is sponsored by Hegel, <laughs> George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, the German philosopher. Uh, this book is called The Philosophy of History. And I'll tell you what, guys, I bought this at a used bookstore in Finley, Ohio, when I used to work for a union and was trying to organize some workers and the boss was fighting pretty terribly, um, very effectively, actually, and scaring people and it wasn't going well. And um, the used bookstore up there in Finley. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is one of the classics. This inspired uh, a lot of uh, modern philosophy, uh, Marxism, and all that stuff. I'm going to read this and, you know, I'll read this over the next couple days at night. Well, I'll tell you what, it was really good um, at getting me to go to sleep. Um, but let me read the back of this. It says, uh, the philosophy of history reveals the basic principle of Hegel's thought that history is not meaningless chance, but a rational process, the realization of the spirit of freedom. It examines the history of the world from ancient, an ancient Orient through classical Greece and Rome, the Middle Ages to modern times, isolating the essence of each culture and establishing its place in a developmental dialectic. See, when I see that word dialectic, I get, oh, my brain starts to what the heck does that mean yeah okay so special sections cover methods of treating history the geographical basis of history classification of historical data islam the byzantine empire the english constitution and the french revolution etc you know this makes me want to read this now and i would i did i gotta admit i flipped through this a little bit and um it's not terribly long it's like well it is 450 pages I flipped to the middle and I started to read and it seemed a little bit more like history. I think the beginning was uh, talking about the spirit and all kinds of jibber jabber I could not make out. Um, it really made me feel dumb. So anyways, this week the book, uh, the show is sponsored by The Philosophy of History by George uh, Wilhelm Frederick. You like how I say that word, Frederick? I don't know if that's how you're supposed to say it, but it's just fun. Hegel, uh, I actually got this at a used bookstore. That's where you should get it too. Uh, read it. Um, email the show at prcshow at gmail.com. Read it. Give me a 1,000 word essay summarizing this book. <laughs> and then maybe I'll try to read it. All right. Thanks. Okay, so let's talk about horse carriage drivers. Now, maybe some people are aware of this, but uh, one of the reasons the new mayor of New York got elected was because of his stance against horse carriage drivers. Not drivers, but the, ho the whole horse carriage thing. Um, he's against it, and he says he's going to eliminate it. Now, 
that's causing a lot of controversy because, I don't know, people romanticize it and they think it's cool and all that stuff. And I'm actually going to read a little bit of a letter in one of the newspapers in New York, the New York Daily News, from the great actor Liam Neeson, who played uh, Michael Collins, the Irish revolutionary. Uh, he was in a couple other movies, too. <laughs> but uh, this is one of the things he says. Uh, a, more, a majority of carriage drivers in stable hands are recent immigrants, often raised on farms in their home countries. They love their jobs and their horses, and they take pride in being ambassadors for this great city. I can't help but see the proposed ban as a class issue. Their livelihoods are now at risk because the animal rights opponents of the industry are well-funded by real estate interests which has led to speculation that the powerful lobby wishes to develop the west side properties occupied by the stables. As a result, an entire way of life and a historic industry are under threat. We should ask whether this is the New York we want to live in, sanitized metropolis where local color and grit are thrown out in favor of sleek, futuristic buildings and careening self-driving cars. Okay, so, see... Oh, I always have strong opinions on things, and I don't know how I feel about this. Um, this idea of, you know, the real estate developers uh, kind of backing this and trying to get these horses, uh, and you know, wrapping it up in a animal rights argument, but really it's about maybe properties and stuff like that. That, that I, that's I can buy that. Um, but I am sympathetic to the animal rights issue. I'll tell you what, when I was in Memphis, I saw this horse and it was looking gimpy. It was old and it was, uh, it was pulling this cart. And I thought, man, that horse, that, that horse really needs to, um, you know, rest, sit down or something. But, you know, I don't know. What do I know? I don't know much about animals. I don't know much about, uh, horticulture <laughs> that's not the right word um horsiculture uh horses but i i do th see um that maybe it's not good for the horses but then you know you think about well what would happen to these horses would they just become dog food if they can't you know the, the cost of uh Maintaining these horses, I imagine, is coming in through their labor, their, you know, the the stuff they do. So I guess, you know, Liam Neeson talks about they can only do six hours a day and all this stuff and that the, the conditions are great for the horses and all that. Um, I don't know. Tell me what you guys think. PRCshow at gmail.com if you think this is good or bad. Uh, so I was in Memphis. I had too much to drink, so I don't know how good this uh, interview is going to be, but I did interview some horse carriage drivers. Well, one, and then there's another one uh, that's, you could barely hear what she's saying. So let's, I'm going to, we'll just listen to it. I'll talk over it and cut in and out, but we talk a little bit about uh, the horse carriage industry down there, and then uh, the, then the conversations turn to something I qu think that's very interesting. Okay. Right. You can get interviewed for a podcast nobody listens to. Yeah. Nobody yeah. listens to. Your yeah, name's, you what's your name? Lisi. All right. And what do you do? I'm a carriage driver. How long have you been doing this for? Ten years. 
His name is Kaz. I'm, okay, I'm Paul. I do a show called The PRC Show. It's a podcast that no one listens to. Um, how long uh, have you had this relationship with this horse? Five years. And uh, His name is Bobby Cash. Is he related to uh, any other Cashes? Oh, uh, yeah, he's Johnny's baby brother. Yeah. How long is this horse... Um, what do you call what you do? How long has he been a carriage horse? No, what, actually, I'm sorry. What, what, what do you call, like, your occupation? I'm a carriage driver. How long has uh, carriage driving been going on in Memphis? Since the early 1980s. Oh, okay, so only... So not terribly not long. long. No. But, uh, how did... you know how it got started? How the carriage driving got started? Yeah. No, do you? Somebody brought a horse and carriage down here. When they reopened the Peabody Hotel, they started putting horses and carriages back here in Memphis. And, um, it just went from there. When did Beale Street become, uh, a thing? Has Late it always 1980s, been a thing? no. Same time. In the 70s and 80s, you didn't come downtown. Everybody went to Overton Square and party. Now the square is like just now starting to make a comeback, but downtown's been kicking for years now. And you've been in, uh... Carriage driving? You've been, like, in Memphis. Are you from this area? Born and raised here. So, um, I imagine that horse costs more than my car. <laughs> is that true? I don't know what my boss paid for. Oh, so you work for, like, a company? Yeah. Did I'm you guys... an independent contractor. Would you say that's how most of the people do it, or...? Yeah, most everybody down here is independent contractors. Yeah, because you have to oil it, get its oil changed, yeah. get the pistons. You have to brush them and glove them and pick their feet. And he just got two new tires on the back today. So who owns this and the horse and all that? My boss, Jake Shore. And what about Sally over here? Or... Karen. Karen. Karen, she drives for Jake also. We've both been driving 10 years. We started the same year. Mm-hmm. What do you do when it snows? We don't work. We stay home just like snow. everybody else. It doesn't snow as much. This city shuts down when it I'm snows. I'm from Pittsburgh, so. Okay, well, when it snows in the south, it's, the city shuts down. Right. Nobody comes to work. I mean, the fast food restaurants are barely open. Right. Yeah. So this has only been going on for about 25 years, but I've noticed the, the Beale Street seems to be very happening. It's only been going on about the same amount of time, too. Yeah. Elvis died. They opened Graceland for tourism. They redid the Peabody Hotel. Elvis died in it. what, 70 something? Late 70s, 77, 78? 77, something like that. Yeah, late 70s. I'm not good with numbers. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I got yeah. facts, but not numbers. Okay, what's the craziest thing you or Karen has seen other than conception in one of these things? Man, I, I picked up these two drunk Marines one night going down Main Street. And I'm talking about one dude just holding this other one up. And he's like swinging off the end of his arm and he's getting nowhere. And I'm like, hey, dudes, come on, I'll give y'all a ride. So on the way to give them a ride, I find out that they've gotten thrown off of Bill Street and had to leave their wives on Bill Street. And so we're going down Main Street and the really drunk guy gets mad at the other guy, punches him in the face, knocks his glasses nice. off. Yeah. And so... He's like, just leave. Don't worry about my glasses. Don't worry about my glasses. Just get us to the hotel. So I took him with what's now the Sheraton. Used to be the Marriott. Took him 20 minutes to get the dude inside the hotel. And when he came back, because he asked me, would you please take me back to get our wives? And I'm like, sure. And so when that guy comes back, I said, man, you have way more patience than me. Because I would have left that dude a long time ago. He said, ma'am, I'm a Marine and we leave no (laughs) man behind. Yeah, 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 I was like, cool, dude. I was like, let's. Okay, let me stop here because I just want to give a little 
perspective or kind of paint a picture of what these horse carriages are like. So these are horses, and then you got the kind of buggy behind where people ride in the back. But when you're in Memphis, there's a ton of them. I mean, this isn't just one or two. When I was down Beale Street, which is where it's all this uh, drinking and bars and live music and all that stuff and people in the street, um, open container style, there was actually some street uh, art theater, I don't know what you want to call it, but kids like doing backflips, asking for money. I mean, literally like gymnastic style. Anyways, there was about seven to, I don't know, ten horse carriage folks um, kind of lined up waiting for somebody else to ride them back to their hotel or whatever. So, I mean, this is a big industry, I guess, relative to other cities. So, um, I don't know, it would be comparable to New York or what, but, uh, you know, uh, that's why I wanted to kind of talk to these uh, folks, because it is striking to see how many you have of them. Oh, and now I ask her about, like, how many are there and all that stuff, and she'll get into that. Riders are there in this area? Carriage drivers or riders? R I'm sorry, drivers. Drivers, there are 50 permitted carriages in this city, and there are never 50 on the street at any given time because some of them are like caissons for funerals, and some are special carriages that you only use for certain things. But I'd say on average on the weekends, there's probably 40 carriage drivers out. And um, do, ever, do um, people ever just take it for like business purposes, or is it more of like a tourist thing? Um, so people do business rides. Um, like, oh, I gotta go down to the office. Yeah, and we actually have like, I have a truck, we have a truck and trailer that you load the horse and carriage on, and I go out a lot of times and do weddings and princess parties and quesanetas and sweet sixteens and proms and things like that, so I'm not always working downtown. Are you responsible for feeding it and all that stuff? At night, yes, and um, we're on a rotation in the morning times. Our drivers take turns. We take turns going in in the mornings and feeding. And then at night, we have a set protocol, like the first driver in sets all the grain in the buckets. The next driver in hays all the horses. The next driver in feeds all the horses. What's hays all the horses mean? Hay. Gives everybody hay. And that's what they eat? They hay and grain, yes. Okay, let me ask you something. I don't, like, okay, to people that are listening to this, if this is even being picked up, there looks like a shit bucket behind this. Okay. That is called a diaper bag. A diaper bag. And it catches the poop. Is that effective? Yes. Oh, it, it, it does look like you a push the brake, pull back, poop goes in the bag. If you miss, you have to get down, take the dustpan, the broom, sweep it up, put it in the bag. Yeah. So you get pretty good at catching it as long as the wind's not blowing real hard. Okay, and I, I don't want to, uh, I can change your name if you want me to, but. I don't care. Um, well, let me ask, what's your name again? Lisey. Lisey. Are you guys, um, so how many, like, what's, how many different companies operate these, these um, guys? One, two, three, four, five. There's five large companies down here, and then a couple individual owner And operators. you work for one of the bigger ones? Yes. What's it called? The Carriage Company. I'm going to get controversial here. Um, have you always worked for the same company? No. Okay. I started out for a different company and worked there about three months. And the man that I work for couldn't wait to take me and introduce me to Jake, this other company owner. And less than three months later, I had left him and went to work for Jake. Does she work for Jake, too? Yes. Um, are you guys, like, in a union at all? Or like no. No. Yeah, we should be. We should be Teamsters because we're, like, the original Teamsters. I know. That, well, that's what I was sort of getting to. Yeah, they are in New York City. So they how are. many hours a week do you guys work? 
Um, I work four days a week, anywhere from four to eight hours a day. So what do you work, probably like Thursday through Sunday? Actually, I work Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday. But Monday and Tuesday were kind of yucky this week, so I trade them for Wednesday and Thursday. And Karen, how about you? When do you work? I do, what am I doing? Monday and Tuesday off. And do you make, and this is a personal question, you don't have to answer it, but do you make most of your money through your wage or through your tips? 50-50? Depends on the weekend and the crowd that's in town. And it depends on how much podcasters tip. <laughs> I know. God damn. At least he don't work for free. <laughs> no. I told her that she could give me a ride. But yeah, I, he's I, taking a taxi to his hotel and yeah. I'm going to the barn. Yeah. I'm going to follow y'all. Yeah. Um, so, like, is it... My question is, like, is it dependent on how much tourism and stuff? Like... What if you're sitting here, like, what is your... Some days, like yesterday, I came out, and I was out here for five hours, and I didn't do a ride. That means I make no money, because I work off a of commission plus my tips. I don't work by the hour. Okay, so so it is... So my job is either feast or famine. But how about the guy that owns the horses? What does he do? He owns several horses in a restaurant and a bakery and um, God knows what else. Yeah. <laughs> He's been a businessman since he was very young, and he dabbles in all kinds of different businesses, and he just makes it all work and everything happen. And so, if he was, you're, he's in his seventies. He was born on Pearl Harbor Day, and he's a really cool old man. So, but but if you're here for all day, say if you're here for six hours on a Monday or Tuesday, and nobody comes, I go home, and you don't get paid anything. Nothing. That sounds like it would suck. It does some days. It used to be hours. There are those days that it totally sucks. Well, wouldn't, would but you then not, there are those days that you roll out here on booming, Saturday you're cute, you're, and you make a week's pay in one day. Right. You know, so, I mean, it, now, it all it, works out. It did a long time ago. It was an hourly paid job plus tips. Yeah. And do you think that's a better way of doing it? Because yeah. I, I would I think like it would commission. be. Because you know, I'll tell you what. Talking to Chris, I think it would be better if really? we were hourly. I think so, yeah. It would be guaranteed something to be here. But then there are those Because then your time is worth it. Yeah, but then there are those days where you come out here and you sell five or six hundred bucks and you make plus. the percentage of that sales plus your tips and you've took home a week's pay today. Exactly. You plus know? when you're commission only, you sell. Yeah. You learn how to sell, you figure out how to how sell. How to market yourself. It motivates you, right. Great. Yeah. Right. You're more motivated. So who's the best carriage driver here? Other than you two, is there somebody that's like, God damn, that person is fucking... Her husband? Like, her she, husband, can, she he, can really reel him in. She can reel him in very well. Her husband can, too. I learned from him. He's, he's really, really good. I have good days and bad days. What know? do people make doing this? $30,000 a year? Uh, $80,000 uh, you know, a year? I always, I always kind of equate it to working at a good restaurant. Wait tables right. at a nice restaurant. It's about that. Yeah, okay. You know? I'll tell you what, they should know because in Chicago and in New York City, there's a big movement to... In New York to stop it, yeah. And the reason being that they're claiming is abuse. And what people should know is to do their homework and do some research. And that everybody's got a little part inside them that when they see somebody lift something up that's really heavy, you go, oh, God, I feel kind of bad for them, you know. But if they understand the mechanics of the working horse that this is not abusive, it can be done abusively. But inherently, it's not abusive. And especially in New York City, Memphis, Chicago, these places, they're not abused. Is that the main place? That's the only place to do it, right? No, they're all over the place. No, you know what? They're right. Because, like, every city has it. I live in Harrisburg, PA. Yeah. And there is, there's the Clydesdales. Now, let me ask you something. 
Who would win okay, if had a, like, now I get into a little uh, silliness here, and maybe my drinkings kind of took over. But we're going to get into a little bit of a discussion here about politics, and it's fascinating. Uh, it's, it's upsetting. <laughs> And I think it highlights why we are where we're at. Yes. I think that both maybe have, no, 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 what I was going to say, they both, I've, I've thought about cats a lot, they have, and horses, they have that sense of being, and being is like more important to them than intellect or, you know, paying yourself. Yeah, sorry, I'm not sure what we're talking about here. like they're both equal in that, that they just go back to their stall and they just are. And that's all cats. What about do. dogs? Dogs are smarter. Let's be honest. Dogs, I think, yeah, but they, I, I, they can recognize think, facial expressions. I think. They I think. think. And didn't dogs? Do you do? Somebody told me that dogs got that they like the reason that they evolved to have eyebrows is because humans have eyebrows. I've been thinking. I've been looking I, I, at I think dogs. you might be right about that. Because when we go like this, we look at them. We do this. You know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking people. about. Like, you know, they go. It's because they have these little eyebrows. They don't. They don't I believe in evolution purpose, as well. You know? Anyways, yeah. let me ask. Is that what we were talking about? When you were saying you think you guys should, a union might be a good thing, why do you think that? Because we would have somebody to back us when the people come through like they're doing in New York. Because if they manage to shut down New York or any of these major cities, it's only a matter of time before they're coming after us. And once they get all that done, then it's only a matter of time before they go after the individual horse owners and try to tell them what right. they can do with and their And cat animals. and dog owners. That's and what cat they're and dogs, right. You know, they're, they're trying do you to guys get health things. insurance? Do we have health insurance? Like, is it like, are you part of like, you know, you get a health benefits? Well, we everybody gets that. And no, there's a, the Church Health Center here in Memphis. It's the, so you work and you don't have health insurance other than the new government uh, plan? It's the largest government they, plan. No, no, I don't have the government plan. I have not even been to an Obamacare website and looked at it. I refuse. <laughs> Okay, she refuses to look at the Obamacare website, which I could sympathize with that given all the. Uh, media attention that it's a terrible website and all that but you don't have health insurance um this is where the conversation i think is a little bit interesting and frustrating but uh eh, just you listen. don't have any health insurance no, no. What i happens belong if... to the church health center i am a patient at the church health center that's for people that and it is the largest faith-based health care organization in the united states and you get uh, discounted health care based on your income it's for people with no insurance. It's for the underemployed individual. Why haven't you been to the, um, whatever the website Obamacare is? Obamacare website? Because yeah. the next thing you know, they're going to want you to get a chip in your hand, and that's the mark of the beast, and I don't play that game. Nobody, I will tell you this much, nobody wants the, the mark of the beast. Okay. I so agree with that. I'm not having Obamacare, because well, I, mean, I believe that's the I first step too. to the mark of the beast. It's called communism. Nobody wants the mark of the and beast. And if they, if they move communism into the United States really slowly, I don't know, say over the last 30 years, and do it really, really, really slowly and take over every single aspect of your eventually, life, eventually we're going to be right where we are. You know, well, let me ask you, you this. always die off. How does the health, how, the how does the health center work now? Like, if you want to get a flu shot or just check up, like, what, what's, how does that work? Yeah. I do. I work in healthcare. <laughs> you just you call the church health center, you make an appointment, and yeah. you go in just like your doctor's office. And they you have a sliding fee scale, and it's based on your income. It cost me, um, I think, $30 to go to see my doctor. 
and I have a regular doctor. I don't see just anybody. I have a primary care physician that I see when I go there. And like when one of our horses fell down and broke my arm, it cost me $45 to have x-rays and a cast. I fell off a carriage. Yes, that's right. She said she fell off a carriage. I actually stopped the interview at that point because we got a little bit more political. And I wanted to have a little more lighthearted, and I wanted to put this episode up. And, and, and actually, the conversation continued to be pretty pleasant. Um, and they backtracked a little bit on their, I guess, thoughts about uh, government uh, involvement in the world. But... Um, isn't that upsetting <laughs> that that's how people think, um, you know, insurance uh, works? <clears throat> I work in a hospital, and most hospitals, close to 50%, definitely more than 40% of their revenue comes from people that have government insurance. That is Medicare, insurance for folks over 65, and Medicaid insurance for uh, poor folks. So whatever you want to call that, that's the world we live in. <laughs> Five. And I've tried to get him up several times to drive different horses and he's my baby. How so I basically uh, took a ride back to my hotel and that was fun. Um, But I would recommend taking a carriage ride in Memphis. Great time. Um, Lisa had a wealth of knowledge about the city. She would definitely be somebody I'd want you to go, that you should go to. And uh, her company's called The Carriage Company. They have a website called www.carriagecomemphis.com. They do engagement, shuttle service, tour groups, weddings, downtown tours, which is sort of what I took, birthdays. Um, and you can, uh, I guess, get in contact with her at 901-262-3818, 901-262-3818. So, uh, she was a great, uh, person for a tour. we're done with this, he can take a picture of me and you next to him. Where do these horses live at? Like, where does he... My barn is two miles north of the Peabody Hotel, on 2nd Street, right there. Oh, okay, so not far at all. No, it takes him, it takes me about 40, 45 minutes to walk out here, and it takes about 30 or 35 to walk home, because once he realizes he's going home, he, like, walks super fast. He's like, time to go to bed. And is it true that horses sleep standing up? They do. They will lay down or they will stand. They sleep both ways. Do you find that odd? That they sleep standing up? Yeah. Well, you know, in the animal kingdom, they're either fight or flight. Horses don't fight, they run from what scares them. If you're standing up sleeping, it's a whole lot easier to get away from what's after you. So I think that that is an evolutionary thing. Okay, and let's also plug Marina's uh, fundraising again at bit.ly backslash capital M-A-N-T-I-C. So, uh, okay, hope you guys enjoyed the show. We'll be back again in a couple weeks. Uh, I got the Pittsburgh Marathon coming up. Hopefully I don't die after doing that. Okay. Uh, Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to the PRC Show. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PRC Show or follow us on Tumblr at prcshow.tumblr.com. All of these episodes can be found at soundcloud.com slash PRC Show. Your host is Paul Robert Cooley Jr. Technological consultant, sound design, host curation, and music production is also by Paul Robert Cooley. Emotional support brought to you by the roommates of Salvador and Kate G. Executive producers Josh Ferris, all labors donated. Thanks for listening.